Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 153. With Mark Hirschberg, the author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of our listeners have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high performance strategies in our schools, sports and the workplace with ideas that we can all use, understand and implement immediately. Our guest for this week, Mark Hirschberg, who has spent his career identifying and studying the skill gap that exists for what he calls firm skills, including networking, negotiating, communicating, leading and career planning. We tend to think of many of these as situational skills, but Hirschberg says they are really life skills, none of which are formally taught in school. We've been talking about these skills since the launch of the podcast over two years ago. We call them social and emotional skills as they're known in our schools or emotional intelligence skills in the workplace. I'm extremely interested in speaking to Mark about the gaps that he sees with these skills since a recent survey that I saw and mention often shows that 58% of employers say college graduates aren't adequately prepared for today's workforce and those employers noted a particular gap in social and emotional skills. Students who learn to master these important skills will get ahead faster with less effort and frustration than those who lack these skills. Just to recap, there are five distinct components of emotional intelligence that I think are important in the workplace. There's self-awareness. This is so important in the workplace because you need to know yourself first before you can even begin to help others with whatever your product or service is. There's self-regulation because there'll be many times in the day where you'll be tested and have to be able to manage your emotions under pressure. There's internal or intrinsic motivation where you've got to know what motivates you to get up and serve every day. There's empathy, which is an important skill to have to connect with others. You've got to be able to see the world through someone else's eyes. And there are many other social skills that are important from how you speak to others, to ordering your lunch in a restaurant, to picking up your rental car and dealing with the front desk employees in the hotel you're staying at. If students do not learn these skills at an early age, they'll struggle with their life and future career. Whatever model or social emotional learning competency a school uses, whether it's the CASEL's five competencies that we've modeled our work after on the podcast, or something similar to what Renee Adams explained in episode 151 with the Goldman Emotional Intelligence Training Model, the idea is that we prepare our next generation of students to thrive in this ever-changing world and that we as adults are modeling these skills. Before we meet Mark, I wanna share a bit more about the work he's been doing the past few decades, as there's always so much more to someone than meets the eye with the books they write or their career path. Mark is the author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Educated at MIT, Mark spent his career launching and fixing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s, and academia. He's developed new software languages, online marketplaces, new authentication systems, and tracked criminals and terrorists on the dark web. I've got to ask him something about what he learned here. Mark helped to create the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he's taught for 20 years. Let's meet Mark Hirschberg. Welcome, Mark Hirschberg. I was so grateful that Howard Rankin introduced us after he interviewed you on his podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about what you focused your whole career on the past few decades. And it's really what my podcast here has been centered around. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, I'm going to open up with a question that has nothing to do with the career toolkit, because, of course, when I was reading your bio, I couldn't overlook this. My husband spends so much of his spare time working with law enforcement, with the volunteer work he does with our local sheriff posse program. But I've got to ask, what did you learn from tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web and how have you applied this to your career? The reason I wound up doing that work, tracking people on the dark web, is because my graduate work was in cryptography, a version of, or a branch of cybersecurity. And one of the things that you're trained to do when you study cybersecurity is to understand information, how to hide information, how to look for information others are trying to hide and what information might be leaking out. And in our workplace, in our careers, in our offices, in our engagements with other people, there is always information leaking out. And so being trained to recognize that information, what other information can I pick up? What's being said? What's not being said? What's being conveyed intentionally or unintentionally by other things going on has helped to give me an edge in the workplace. That is really cool. So and just to keep going on this topic for a second, did you ever see that TV show um, something about you watch the person's face and you can re recognize whether they're telling the truth or not. I think it was called Lie to Me or something like that. Yes, that uh, Lie to Me was a reboot. I think the original in the 60s was to tell the truth. Oh, interesting. Because we're, we're learning through our neuroscience course certain things to look for with people. So would you say that you learned things because my husband talks about it all the time when he's dealing with people, you can tell whether they've done something just by the pure look on their face. That's to be fair, not my specialty. My friend Clark Freshman teaches this at, I think it's UC Hastings, uh, Hastings Law School, if I remember right. He's an expert on that. I'm, I'm not a, a trained professional in terms of, oh, where are your eyes looking and your body language, but it's other things like, when you provide background on your company, what are the things you're focusing on? Why are you not mentioning this other area that other companies typically mention? Okay, there's probably something there you don't want me to find. Or just walking into your office and seeing what's your office setup like, right? How are people engaging with each other? What's the stuff around the office? Is it a playful office? Is it a formal office? Picking up information about culture, about people, about values, through these uh, observations. That's where I typically do better than, than the traditional facial recognition. Got it. Well, I find that fascinating. So, so when we launched this podcast, it, we had a goal or a focus of helping educators to understand and implement social and emotional learning skills in our schools with a focus on emotional intelligence as well being missing in the workplace. And I found this study that said 58% of employers say college graduates are not adequately prepared for today's workforce. And employers noted a particular gap in social and emotional skills. And then I saw something uh, through your work over at MIT about these missing skills and you've actually noticed them and written about them in your career toolkit. So can you just explain what did you learn at MIT and how did you begin to start this work? It began with a personal observation myself. I knew I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer, the person who oversees all the software engineers. And I was just a software engineer at the time. And I began to think, what do I need to do to be good in this role? I already knew how to write software. I was pretty good at, but to be the leader in this, it wasn't about being the best software developer. In fact, it's a bunch of other skills. It's leadership, it's negotiating, communicating, team building, hiring, and no one ever taught me these skills. They're not in your standard curriculum. So I had to develop them in myself. As I began this journey, I realized these skills are not just for executives. These are skills all of us need. So I started to train up people on my team. Shortly after, MIT had gotten a very generous grant from Desh Deshpande. He said, here's some money, put together a program to help people be more entrepreneurial, be more effective. And the person who ran the program, Chris Resto, 
was working with the career office and said, what are the skills that will make someone successful that we might not otherwise be addressing? And our career office had done a lot of research. They worked with our corporate partners, so the companies that come and hire at MIT, ranging from big tech, big finance, big consulting, but also mid-size startup companies. So a wide range and not just engineering firms. And they said, there's a number of skills that we're not seeing. Yes, they're great engineers, they can do the math, but these other skills, the leadership, the communication, the ones I mentioned are not typically taught. Similar studies at other universities have gotten the same results. There is a massive skills gap that we're seeing at not just for college students or recent grads, it is universal in our white collar workforce that we are not developing these skills that people need to be successful. So where did this start? Because you know what my work is on. It's I've seen that the importance of these skills in the classrooms and it started in the late 90s when I was a teacher, you know, there was no emphasis on the importance of these skills. And I went off to work for a motivational speaker and he was working with these kids and they used these skills and their whole lives turned around. So I started to see back then how important it was, but it's taken a very long time for our schools to see the importance. What do you see as the reason for this gap or why these skills are missing and not important? Our schools are designed backwards looking. So at the primary and secondary level, our modern US school system goes back about 150 years. And it's around the time of the Industrial Revolution. Before that, you grew up on the farm, you learned everything you needed from your parents. Once we got to be an industrialized nation, people went off to the cities, to the factories, there were basic skills that were needed, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so we had to create a school system to give people these skills so they could be in the factory and read the danger sign or count how many things were coming off the assembly line. And that's what the school system was designed for. Even when you think mid-century, and we had people now in more professional roles, as say an accountant or a marketer, your job was to sit there and do what your boss told you. There wasn't a lot of higher order thinking. It was only in the late 20th century as we got rid of middle management, as we got to flatter, more dynamic roles in our companies, that as a marketer, now you're dealing with the accountants and the software engineers, and you need a different set of skills. So that's been a relatively recent change going back 20, 30, 40 years, depending on how you define it. Now at the university level, this, this is a history going back 900 some years. It's run by professors and they are wonderful people, but a professor gets to that position by being very narrow and very deep. So if you get a marketing degree, what happens? You show up to school and the professor says, okay, you wanna be a marketer. Here's what we've decided. You have to take these four introductory classes, then some of these mid-level classes, and then pick a few of the advanced classes. And if you do all this, plus maybe a general requirement or two, some math, some history, some language that the university wants. But if you jump through these hoops and take all these classes we tell you, at the end, we'll give you a marketing degree. What is that degree really saying? It's saying you've taken all these classes. You have achieved a certain level of knowledge. It's not saying you're a good marketer. It's not saying you're a good employee or a good teammate, leader or effective. It's just saying, you have acquired this level of knowledge. And back in that 1950s model, sure, you sat in your desk and you did what you were told. But in today's world, these other skills are necessary, but the university system as well has not caught up with this change. Got it. And the study that I looked at showed the top skills that are, are being talked about as being lacking. So problem solving, critical thinking, innovation, creativity, which we know are a lot of the skills that are missing in our schools and the focus on um, the brain-based learning now to try to bring creativity back into our classrooms. There was also the ability to deal with complexity and ambiguity and communication skills. Uh, would you agree with these ones being missing and what other ones do you think are important? They certainly are. There is a massively huge set of skills. We can go as well into a different set of practical societal skills like financial literacy or being able to argue a point to have a disagreement 
you and I might, for example, disagree politically, but how do we have a rational discussion instead of just saying, you're stupid or your idea is stupid, right? How can we say, well, here's why I disagree. The skills that I saw most from the universities, they tended to focus, as we mentioned, leadership, negotiation, networking, communication, ethics, team building, career planning, working effectively in your environment. So understanding the corporate culture and how you fit into it. Those are the skills that we've consistently seen, which is not to say these other skills are not important. I will say probably at MIT, the critical thinking and problem solving was probably less of a priority for us because we tend to do a good job with that already. Right, right. And when I was looking through your website, I actually saw a lot of free resources um, through your career toolkit book. And I was looking at uh, perhaps the career planning because I just find it amazing that Simon Sinek had a whole career on his book, Start With Why, because a lot of people aren't asked, you know, well, what what is your purpose or to, to figure out what's important to you before career planning? So can you just talk through some of the resources that you put on your website and why they're there, what how they're helping people? People. Yeah, let's talk about career planning first. I think that's so important. Then we'll talk about some of the resources. Sure. Unfortunately, the way we teach career planning is, oh, this is Jenny's dad and he's a doctor, right? This is Rob's mom and she's a lawyer. Okay, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? And what we're doing is we're giving students this binary choice. Do you fit in this box or not? Mm-hmm. And that works a little. And we definitely see with some people, a young student who might have an inclination towards STEM skills, towards math or science, we say, oh, you should look at math or science. If you like writing, maybe consider a job with more writing. Okay, it's good to encourage those skills if that's what the student enjoys. But we can't say we can encourage the skills, but then there's this jump to you either fit into this job or you don't. And really what we want to do is focus not on job titles, but on job attributes. So for example, you like math and science. Okay, analytical skills. Let's find you jobs with analytical skills. And that might be a doctor, it might be an engineer, it might be a different type of role. If you happen to be an extrovert, you might want a job where you're interacting with lots of different people. If you're an introvert, you might want a job where you get to sit in an office by yourself six, seven, eight hours a day. And so that's not a job title, that's a job characteristic. So what we want to recognize as we teach people job opportunities is to say, here are the characteristics you seem to enjoy. Look for jobs that have A, B, and C. Here's a few of them, but there's probably many others that the teacher or the parent isn't aware of. There's many others that will be created in the coming decades that we just don't know about today. So by doing matching, not on the job title, not do you fit into this job or not, but what are the characteristics, that's gonna help someone be a little more focused on what they want being the core and not just, I want to be X or I don't want to be X. Now, there are a number of resources on the website to help with this and other skills. So I put a lot of free downloads and links to other things. One of the downloads, for example, is actually the questions we use in the book, which starts to ask questions like, what do you enjoy doing? What don't you enjoy? Where might you want to live in the future? Because if you want to be top of the finance game, but you also want to live in Alaska, you probably have a problem, right? That's just not gonna work out well. And so recognizing, not just for today, but for tomorrow, where you might wanna go. You don't have to answer all these questions, but they're gonna help you start to think. There's also links to case studies and to other resources online. I'm a believer in using assessments so you're, many people might be familiar with Myers-Briggs, the MBTI types. There's DISC, there's Strength Finders, there's Herman Brain Dominance Instrument. There's a whole bunch of these. And so I linked to some of the, I tried to find free ones online. You can, of course, find pay ones. Because if you can figure out what your preferences are, this can also help direct you in your career and into how you engage with your coworkers and your job. And then I, of course, list a number of books, including the books I reference in my own, if you want to go deeper on a topic, as well as other books I may not have referenced, but that I found helpful throughout my career. And there's a few other downloads I think we'll be talking about uh, a little later in the interview. 
What I really liked about your resources is that a lot of people get to this place through trial and error. You know, they they do a job and then they find out, well, this wasn't exactly for me because if only they had thought about it a little bit beforehand, like you went through your worksheet or had some sort of thought, I ended up in teaching and that wasn't right for me and pivoted. And then I ended up in the corporate world and I loved when I did field sales because I could drive around the country and I had freedom, I could do what I wanted. But when I got stuck in a cubicle position, I almost died. So all these questions, you know, how do you like to operate in your day? If, if you know that you need to be up and moving, a cubicle job just wouldn't be for you. So I really like seeing those questions because I really wish that I had done something like that to have helped me along the way. And you hit upon something there. We could say sales. Oh, you'd be a great salesperson. But there's a difference between field sales out on the road. You set your own schedule versus you're in the office nine to five. They're both sales and title, but there's a very important, subtle difference there. And that's what we want to emphasize to students. And if we bring people in, it's important to talk about what's it really like. And in fact, if you are not just a young student, but older, maybe high school, college, or professional, one thing I really encourage is talk to people in different roles. And when we chat, we say, what's it like being a teacher? Not just, oh, I enjoy the student engagement. Okay, that's, that's lovely. But really, what's your day like? Well, you're waking up at 5.30 to be in school by 6.30 to start the lesson plans. I have no idea. As a student, I just showed up when the bell rang. So understanding what it's really like day to day. And by the way, when interviewing, this is something it kills me that more people don't do this, is I always ask when I'm a candidate, and I always express this when I am an interviewer, what is the typical week like? What's it like? Okay, we're here for 40, 50 hours. How many of those hours is doing X versus Y versus Z? Because you can have jobs that have the exact same title, but that ratio of X to Y to Z is very different, or it's not totally clear. And understanding that, because if I really like doing X, and I'll do Y and Z, they're not my favorite, but I love X or I'm good at X, I want to find a job where X is the core part of it. And if it's mostly Y and Z, I'm not going to be happy. I might not even be the best candidate. So we want to get not just into the title, but really what that execution is. Got it. I loved the interview one because I'm hearing a lot of um, what my husband's doing right now in the corporate world doing all the the pandemic hit and people are displaced. They're looking for new candidates. And what, what I heard you on another podcast talk about was that a lot of people have not been trained in these skills and they're just asking certain questions. And he got to the end of his process and he has to start over again. He didn't find the right candidate. So what, what do you think is an important skill that most people would need to know for interviewing? Well, you hit upon the basic. I have met executives at companies you have heard of. These are people who have hired dozens of people, scores of people throughout their career. And if you ask them, have you had any training as an interviewer? They say, oh, no, no one ever taught me this. This is insane because for a lot of these white power jobs, we say the people, it's so important to find the right person, to get the right fit for the team. And we've given them no training. You've literally had more training in how to tie your shoes than how to interview someone. This is crazy. And so even spending a little time training up yourself, your team, and how to be a more effective interviewer will have a massive ROI. Now, when we interview, one of the big mistakes is recognizing what we interview for. And people fall into the classic, the street lamp effect. This comes from an old joke. There is a drunk man staggering around the street. And a police officer shows up and says, okay, what, what are you doing? So oh, I lost my house keys. I'm trying to find it. The officer says, okay, I'll, I'll give you a hand. And so they spend the next 30 minutes looking all over the street. At which point the officer says, look, I, we've looked everywhere. We can't find it. Are you sure this is where you lost your keys? And the drunk says, oh, no, no, no. I, I lost my keys over on Maple Street. Officer exasperatedly claims, exclaims, why then are we looking over here? And the drunk says, well, there aren't any street lamps on Maple Street. 
And so people want to do what's easy. He's looking under the street lamp because that's easy, not because it's what's right. Mm -hmm. When we look at our job descriptions, we say X years of experience or knowledge of Y. Okay, that's pretty easy. Andrea, have you had at least five years experience doing this? Oh, you have, okay, check. Do you know why? I'm gonna ask you a question. You either you know, say, here's the answer or you get it wrong. You either know it or you don't, that's easy. But then there are other attributes we want that we don't explicitly think about because they're harder to assess. So people, for example, I see in a lot of job descriptions, good leadership skills. Okay, well, you know, finding a leader is good. What type of leader? Is it a leader who is a growth leader? Is it a transformational leader? Is it a leader who can take a demoralized team and inspire them? Do you need that inspirational leader? Do you want the more democratic buy-in leader? What type of leadership are you looking for? Because if you don't know, then you don't explicitly look for it and you might get the wrong fit if you even look for it at all. So we want to recognize attributes as well as knowledge and skill and think about how can we actively assess for these attributes. Oh, this is really good. I can see how your worksheets can really help make a difference for somebody who is interviewing just to do things a little differently than maybe they've done it in the past. Because if I was to ask anybody that I know that's interviewing, uh, what what are you doing? You're just asking the questions that you've always asked most people. They're they're not doing anything different. So if if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, well, these are great ideas, and they go to your website, what kind of uh, training would you have that you could offer a company? Do you go in with your book and walk a company through what exactly they should do? What, what would be the process? I'm going to start by offering something you can do for free on your own. And then we'll talk about what I can add to that. Sure. These skills are different than how we've typically learned because the learning we've done in high school and college, it's knowledge transfer. It's memorizing what happened during the American Revolution. It's learning the quadratic formula. And so a teacher stands up, says, here's what you need to know. Everyone copies it down, says, okay, great, I got it. And I'll apply it in this context. There is no formula for leadership. There's no three things to remember for communication. These are subtle, complex skills. And so the best way to learn them, the way we teach them at MIT, the way they're taught at top business schools is through peer learning groups. So what you want to do is create groups of people. And I recommend starting with groups of six to eight people, but you can scale it up if you want to do groups of 20 or even 50, there's ways to do that. But create multiple groups of a handful of people. Then you take some content. So you can take my book, chop up into pieces. And I have some guides for how you can cut it up different ways for different outcomes. So you chop it up and you say, okay, the next two week cycle, we are going to read these 10 pages. And then we come together to discuss because maybe we've read uh, something on communication. So, oh, you know, I have this communication challenge right now. And you can chime in and say, you know, Mark, I had something similar and here's how I approached it. Or I give you my thoughts. You say, well, Mark, have you thought about doing this as well? And I'm gonna give you suggestions from my experience. So we're gonna learn from each other because the context, the actual environment matters. This is why top business schools use case studies because it's that full context in which you have to apply these skills. So it's in that discussion that you get a couple benefits. One is we really get into the subtlety of it and not just, oh, a good leader does this, but okay, where does the rubber meet the road? Second, it's going to help us really uncover the complexity of it. Third, this increases your employee engagement. Instead of just showing up to work and doing my job, and maybe once a year you're sending me some training, now on a regular basis, maybe twice a month, I am engaging and learning and growing and doing so at very low cost to the company. And then it's also helping both build that internal network. I'm getting to know my coworkers better and building those relationships. And it's giving us a common language because now we can all say, oh, it's just like the elephant. And everyone's read the book and they know exactly what that elephant means as we have a common language. So you get all these benefits by building these internal peer learning groups. And look, if you don't want to use my book, I think my book is great for it. And on the downloads, I show how to use it. Go to the website, pick another great book that you can use. 
pick some article online. You can use great podcasts like this one. Listen to this podcast every cycle and then discuss what you learned in the podcast. The point is you all read some standard content together and then discuss it because it's that discussion that creates the value. So that's something you can download for free on the website and set this up yourself. You can bring me in to go deeper on some of these topics, to talk to your team about, to help you set up this program and what works and what's effective and what's not. So you can do it on your own. I wanna make this available for you for free, but if you wanna bring me in and I do corporate talks and consulting on these topics. Wonderful. I learned so much just from reading those those downloads and love them. So thank you for that. And then I actually saw that you have an app, the Career Toolkit app. So I downloaded that. What would be something that would be important for me to know about the app? I saw some great tips on there, but being the creator, what, what do you want people to know about the app? I was really surprised that app didn't exist before and I had to build this from scratch. I was really looking to license this because whenever you read a book like mine or really any business book or even more broadly a self-help book, you say, okay, here's a bunch of great tips. And then three weeks later, you forget. Mm -hmm. You're on to the next book, you're busy with family, with work, and it fades away. And you mean well and you wanna use it, but you forget. Mm -hmm. So what we wanna do is keep this top of mind. Because if you learn about leadership today, it might be three weeks before you actually have to apply that lesson before the opportunity arises. So with the app, it's a free app. It doesn't record any data. It just sits on your phone and each day it pops up a daily reminder. It's as if you went through the book with a highlighter. No one's going to go back to the book and reopen it. So this can allow you to passively recall the information. It just pops it up, you get the notification, look at, swipe it away. Boom, and it's gonna do what's known as spaced repetition, which I'm sure lots of your listeners are familiar with, to help reinforce the lessons. You can also, if you want, say you're about to walk into a negotiation, go, wow, I read Mark's book two months ago. I didn't have time to reread it last night. So open up the app, go to negotiation tips, and just flip through and say, I'm gonna do a kind of crash refresh on negotiations by flipping through those tips. So there's two different ways you can use the app. Oh, I like it. I didn't realize that it, it would send reminders. So I'm going to have to look at that feature. I use that all the time for things that I need to remember and reinforce because that's what the brain needs. It needs constant, like you said, spaced repetition of ideas. So I like that. You can, you can just set the time if you want each morning, afternoon, evening, you set the time, it's going to pop it up. You can also, if you're just reading a certain chapter, maybe you only want to get reminders for that chapter to build that up for a few weeks before you move on to the next one. And the book, by the way, you don't have to read it in linear order. It's not a story. Many people take it and say, I have a communication challenge. I'm going to jump to chapter seven. Okay, now I want to think about my career. I'm going back to chapter one. Ooh, time to work on my networking. I'm going to chapter eight. So you can jump around whatever order. You can concentrate on a particular section. You don't have to read it cover to cover. Oh, I loved it. I loved looking at the the table of contents and seeing the the different categories like career, leadership management, interpersonal dynamics. Can you just explain, dive a little bit deeper into the three sections? The three sections, which cover 10 skills based on what we've seen, as we talked about earlier, in feedback from companies. The first section is on careers. So chapter one, how to create a career plan, how to think about what you want, creating that plan to go there, executing and refining the plan. Because of course, you don't just create a plan and send stone. You have to regularly revisit and refine. Chapter two, office skills, managing your manager, understanding your corporate culture, understanding how you deliver value so you can deliver more value going forward. Chapter three, interviewing. And we talked about how there's lots of resources as a candidate, less so as a hiring manager, although I do look at it from both sides because no matter which side you sit on, it's helpful to know the other. The second section is leadership and management. So you break down what's the essence of leadership and then management, I break that into two parts because there's the people aspect and the process aspect. The people aspect is how you engage with other people. How do you motivate? How do you work with them? How do you create effective teams? The process aspect, and there's lots of process books out there, but fundamentally in the modern economy, if you are in an office, it is about managing the information flow. And we look at what are some of the key tools you can use, no matter what process you might be applying in your company, how can you effectively manage information flow? 
the third section, Interpersonal Dynamics. Those have chapters on communication, negotiation, networking, and ethics. These are all really good. And right now, um, during these times of change, post-pandemic, and even all the, the new news that's coming out in the headlines with how things are going to be changing, what suggestions would you have for a company that's gone through some changes and, and the culture has gone down the hill? What would you suggest for improving a company's climate? I, I'd begin by surveying your employees and having these honest conversations and hearing the bad news you might be a little afraid of. But if you're not honest about it, if you don't look it directly in the face, you're not going to deal with it. So start with that and ask your employees, what do they see? What do they feel? Don't think you sitting up in the executive suite know what's going on. You have your perspective, but ask each individual in presumably an anonymous survey. Then what you want to do is figure out how to address that. And so here we're a little hand wavy. It depends on what you, you need. I would say what we talked about earlier, this employee development program, these are really great because not only are you upskilling people, so they feel they're getting more value. It's not just the paycheck. We're saying, wow, I am growing. I am developing as a person, but they're also going to be engaged more with their coworkers, building those relationships and it's going to help the communication and just team dynamics of the company, all while you get an improved workforce. So I do recommend that type of internal training program, as well as anything else you might do for team building and employee engagement. We should also recognize as we're going into hybrid workforces, not clear exactly when this will happen. At the time of this recording, Delta, of course, is, is rising. We're talking about going back to the office. Who knows? But we are pretty sure long-term, whether it's in six months or 18 months, we're going to be back in the office, but most likely part-time. We're going to this hybrid, semi-remote workforce. We have to remember the way we have interacted in the past will change. As a leader, often you could walk out to the office and you could sense that mood. You can tell when people are happy or excited or down because there's just some bad news. You can just feel it when you walk out. You're going to be able to do some of that, but it's not the whole story because half your workforce might not be there and you might not have visibility into that. The water cooler conversations, they're not going to happen because we have an explicit Zoom meeting or we don't. You're going to have to find ways where you can better engage and get that information, that communication. And this goes back to actually what we began with at the start of my information security background how could I read things? How could you feel that mood? How could you recognize? I overheard a couple comments at the water cooler. I think there's a pattern here. And so we all have to be better at looking for these signals to recognize it because it won't be as easily broadcast as when we're all in the same office and all working together. That's where the communication skills come in that are not taught anywhere prior to coming into the corporate world. And, and suddenly we have to learn how to work with others and deal with all these things that happen in, in a corporate environment with many different people having to work together. And we have to be more conscious in our communication. Now, communication, very broad topic. You could read a dozen books on communication that all talk about a completely different aspect of it. Some of the topics I focus on in my book is one, actually these communication channels, is thinking consciously about, well, we used to have water cooler conversations. We're not having that. How can I replicate that? What is the process that I need to engage with to get that information in a different way? Now that we're doing maybe more emails or more instant messaging, what does that mean? There are some pros and cons to it, but let's be conscious of that and recognize the benefits, recognize what we're losing information and what we can do to make up for that. So that's actually in the management chapter, because I mentioned the information flow. Then the communication chapter really gets to the fundamentals of the mental models we use when we communicate and how we have different styles and recognizing how to overcome the gap between our styles. Oh, that's good. That's good. I just heard something this morning of one of my friends that worked really closely with John Gray, uh, women are from Mars, men are from Venus author. And he was talking about a communication model where um, women communicate differently from men. Do you cover that at all? 
I get into that a little bit. So I reference a book by uh, Deborah Tannen, who's a linguist at Georgetown. She wrote a great book called Talking Nine to Five about communication in the workplace and men and women and how they communicate differently. I do reference a bit of that. More generally, let's, let's talk about the fundamentals because this can apply to gender, to other aspects as well. Consider if I was going off to France and I'm gonna give a talk in France, I wanna convince everyone of the project, the idea, whatever my goal is. I don't speak French, so I have to speak English. Now, most of them probably do speak English, but I'm asking everyone in the audience to hear my words and translate it into French. They have to spend a little mental energy translating. It's kind of like your server says, well, I have to use a few cycles to go translate it. And that's fewer cycles I have to go focus on the message. So already I am limiting their ability to comprehend, maybe in a small way, but I'm putting this extra mental tax on them. If, however, I knew French or I got someone to translate the speech for me and I just spoke in French, they don't have to do that. Now they can use 100% of their capacity to understand, digest, and make the most of the message I'm giving them. So what I wanna to do to be effective is translate into their language. It's not about French versus English in the workplace, but other mental models. And there's lots of different rubrics you can use for how you and I might have different mental models or similar models in some cases. But once you recognize this, you begin to understand how you can do that translation so I can speak your language to make it easier for you to understand and really engage with my message. Makes complete sense. I love it. This is good. So let's just think about an ideal model. So your corporate environment does your, your book, goes through your programs, and they build something. What would you say would be the starting point? What would you say would be the end point where you say it's working versus in process of working? you will begin to see benefits right away. So let me give a, a simple example. We're going to take one skill that illustrates it well. Let's look at negotiating. Now, the example I usually give is for individuals. So we'll look at that, and then we'll talk about what it means for a company. As an individual, suppose you're 25 years old. Say, I'm going to learn to negotiate. I'm going to read a book, take a class. Now you get a job offer for $60,000. If you say, you know what, instead of taking this, I'm going to negotiate that offer and convince the company to give me 61,000. Right? That's a pretty small lift. We can all imagine that happening. And you don't have to be the world's greatest negotiator to get that. So you get that 61,000. If you do nothing else, if you sit in this job for the next 40 years, you just got $1,000 more for 40 years. You just earned $40,000 from one five-minute negotiation. And that's a huge return. Of course, you're recognizing you're not going to stay in that job for 40 years. You're going to get promotions and raises and other jobs. It's going to be more than $1,000. If you just learn to negotiate a little bit better, you can add tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earning. And of course, with negotiation, it's not just about salary. We negotiate things all the time. So getting a little better, not about being a master negotiator, adds this massive amount of value that you are creating and capturing. Now, when it comes to these other skills, I use that because it's very easy to use numbers when it comes to negotiating. When it comes to leading or communicating, no one says, oh, you're a better leader. Here's $1,000 more. It's not quite so direct. But when you are that slightly better leader, what happens? you get more opportunities for leadership. You get more opportunities for promotion, for involvement on projects, and you're going to get those returns that will be financial in some cases or opportunity and other benefits. And so you'll get that same tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in value. It might not be directly here is more money, but over time, that's what you're getting. So all of these skills, even if you get that tiny little lift, it is cumulative for you as an individual. As a company, ask yourself if everyone in the company was even just one or 2% better at communicating, what is that going to do to your bottom line? And now if you got them better at communicating, at leading, at negotiating, all these things are going to make you so much more effective. The organization's gonna get a massive return 
from what's a relatively tiny investment plus the other benefits we named earlier. So even before the end, it's not as though, okay, a year later, suddenly you reap the rewards. You're going to start to get this weeks and months into the program as people start to improve. In the outcome, now you may have just said, we're going to focus just on communication within the company for the next six months and just that, and that's fine. Or you might take this broader approach. There's different ways to do it that I outline in the free download. And so you can see at the end, what's the outcome? Are people better? It might be with your negotiating, say through your biz devs team, oh, they are getting better outcomes. Communication's a little harder to measure quantitatively, but you might find there's less confusion, less conflict, less, oh, I didn't realize that's what you meant. And now we just lost five days of work because I went in the wrong direction. A little harder to measure. If you really want to figure that out, we can talk about what the challenges are in your company today and then create a metric to measure it and see if it improved at the end. Very good. Very good. I really like the idea of this because of the fact that when we first launched the podcast, it was one of the quotes that I talked about all the time. So to see that you've actually built something based on that survey where these skills are missing, you pinpointed the skills, created something, and now you're working uh, in the corporate world with this. Is there anything that I've missed that is very important that that uh, would kind of highlight the work that you're doing? I'll give one of my favorite examples from teaching because it illustrates what happens with these skills. With all of the skills in the book, it begins with this mental shift and then there are actionable ideas to execute on. But the mental shift is so important. In the class I teach, in the book, you're not going to suddenly be the complete expert on leadership after reading my book or taking the class, right? This is a lifetime of learning. But when you do this shift, you open the door and you start going down a path where once you do the shift, you recognize more opportunities to apply these skills, to enhance and develop, to see opportunities to use it. And so the shift is important. I'm gonna share one of my favorite moments. We do a networking lunch with our students. Now these are college students. The concept of networking is a little foreign to them. They're used to job fairs. Oh, I show up, I hand you my resume, you, we chat for a few minutes and I hope you actually invite me for an interview. So this is not that. You're going to be in this room, there's gonna be a bunch of corporate professionals some of them might be looking for an intern like you, but just chat with different people, get to know them. And so one time a few years ago, I was sitting with a group of students as we began, and they slowly left the table in that nervous, anxious way, not really sure what's gonna happen. And there was one young woman who, very anxious about it, was not excited about networking. Because most of us, we have this view of networking of, oh, I have to talk to strangers and make small talk and collect business cards. And oh my God, this sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. And if that's how you look at, yes, it is terrible. I don't wanna just chat with a bunch of strangers about the weather. I don't wanna have to say I need to get X business cards for this to work. But all of us as humans care about relationships. We care about building those with other people. Maybe it's a deep friendship. Maybe it's just a good conversation with someone. And she and others had that first model of, oh, I just have to go and shake hands and smile and get business cards. So I took her over to a friend of mine who worked in a field I knew she was interested in. I introduced the two of them. I said, this is what he does. And she's one of the students and here's what she's interested in. Stood there for about two minutes while the conversation began and then went off to check on other students. As things wrapped up about an hour and a half, two hours later, and we gave the warning, you know, five minutes, please start finishing up your conversations. I happened to run into her and she looked at me and said, this is so much fun. I don't want to end because she had gotten that shift. She said, wow, it is about talking to people and learning interesting things from interesting people. And when you get that mentality of there's all these fascinating people out there and I want to get to know them and I want to learn things, networking goes from this chore to this is a really fun opportunity. And even people like me who are naturally introverted, it can be a really engaging opportunity. And so this woman went from a lifetime of, I just don't wanna to go to these events, I don't wanna meet people, to suddenly liking it and opening up all these doors and possibilities in her future.
And that's the moment that we get with all these different skills. When you start to recognize they work differently and you see them in a different light, it opens up all these possibilities. Oh, when I when I heard you talking about your networking um, ideas on a different podcast, it made me think of the first networking event I went to, where they had us change the focus of asking people, you know, like thinking about what can I get from someone else. The first conversation was, "Hi, I'm Andrea. How can I help you?" That was the first introduction, and that really shifted when you walk around a room and you start thinking about. Like, what do you do, and how can I help you? First, it just changes every dynamic. And these people, I'm still friends with to this day. I went to this event years ago, and we still help each other on email. It's like here's somebody that might, you know, be someone that you'd want to get to know. It's just so interesting when you think about it. It was building the relationship, but not about what can I get, but what can I give to you. That is one of the shifts that we get with networking. And this is partially because when we go in with "I need," "I want," it's a lot more transactional. For many of us, we have trouble with that ask. "Hi, stranger, do this for me." We're not comfortable asking that.、And、if you have that mentality, you're not comfortable walking into the networking. But if it's "I want to help you," or even "I just want to get to know you," this is going to be a much different dynamic between us. I'm going to walk in with a different mindset. And it creates, as he said, a totally different perspective, and opens up new opportunities. Oh, these are all incredible ideas, Mark. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Anyone who wants to learn more about you, they can go to your website, thecareertoolkitbook.com,、yeah. and there you can learn more about me. Get in touch with me. Follow me on social media. Order the book. Go to the app page. That's going to take you to the app store for the free download. Go to the resources page. You can find other books, links to free resources online, as well as some of the downloads we mentioned. How you can create this development program in your company, the interview questions, the career questions. All of this is available on the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 